Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by James Pathakoukos, the D. Witt Wallace Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a Washington-based policy think tank, as well as the weekly host of a podcast and newsletter on innovation, technology, and progress. He's the author of the must-read new book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. I'm grateful to speak with him about what it means to be a conservative futurist, why you think such a vision is needed, and what we can do individually and collectively to get back to a world of rapid progress and rising living standards. James, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me on. I want to start by unpacking the book's title, if that's okay. Let's begin with the subtitle first. It conveys that our past assumptions of progress have failed to materialize. That idea might seem counterintuitive to some listeners who are accustomed to hearing about how fast the world is changing and how technology are disrupting how we live and work. What were we promised and why do you think we haven't yet realized it? You know, when I think about that question, I think about world's fairs. People think these things have gone away. They still exist. They don't really exist much in North America, but they exist in other places around the world often places which are you know, emerging or developing economies. But they used to be a very big deal, especially here in the United States. And I think about the 1964 World's Fair in New York City, which had this kind of ride called the Futurama Ride, where people would get in these like little booths and they'd go around and they saw this kind of model of like the future, of like you know several decades in the future. It was super popular. I think only uh, there was a there was an exhibit of uh, Michelangelo's Pieta was the only thing like more popular. And this exhibit is like a 15 minute ride. And it had like all the classic like what is now called kind of retro futures concepts in it. You know, cities under the sea, lunar colonies, just like, you know, you know, soaring skyscrapers a mile high. Uh, This was so this this vision of the future, and it's kind of like a very Jetsons vision, which is like another example from the era that this this is this is what the future was going to be. And by the way, the the ride was sponsored by GM. So when he got done with the ride, he went to a GM showroom. So this was a (laughs) this was a techno capitalist future. But we kind of didn't get that. Now, we didn't get sort of just like the obvious a lot of the obvious things which people may think are of secondary importance. You know, you, there are no undersea cities and, and we don't have any lunar bases or Mars bases. But we also aren't sort of living as well as what we could be had those visions come true. Uh, we would be a, a, a richer people. 
a healthier people. And I think that would go for not just you know rich countries like the United States, Canada, Western Europe, and so forth, but the whole world. And I think that didn't have to be. So I guess that's the point of the book, where there's all these kinds of outside factors that maybe we don't have control over, but a lot of that we do have control over. And we made some poor decisions that have led us to a world which is, I think, is is better than the world in the 1960s. I don't want to make that argument that nothing has progressed. But I think compared to where we could be, it probably feels a lot like stagnation. We'll come back to your diagnosis later in the conversation. But now I want to turn to the first part of the title, the idea of a conservative futurist. It might strike some of our listeners as oxymoronic. How can one be a conservative and a futurist in your mind? Well, it probably seems a lot more oxymoronic uh, today than maybe it did several decades ago when people think of conservatism, especially in the United States, they think about a very kind of a, a philosophy of nostalgia, like why can't we go back to the world of the 1950s and 1960s, a world of, of men working in factories, women's day at home. There's a lot of nostalgia. That's not that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the con- first, the conservative part, which focuses on conserving like the best of the legacy of like the enlightenment, of individual rights, of the freedom to freedom of conscience, freedom to start a business if you want to, private property. So it's really a philosophy of freedom. That is sort of the American style conservatism. And maybe that's not what it means to many people these days, but that's what I'm talking about. Something maybe a lot more home with, you know, sort of the pre, pre-Trump pre conservative movement, pre-Trump, even Republican Party. But that's what I'm talking about, a philosophy built around freedom. So that is and preserving that. And I think that and I think that philosophy also, as you know, we, we'll talk about at some point, also informs the kinds of policies, public policies I'm talking about to create a better world. You cite George Will in the book, who argues that American conservatives, and I'd argue Canadian conservatives, are, quote, custodians of the classical liberal tradition. Talk about Will's insight here, James. What does it mean to say that North American conservatives are seeking to conserve liberalism? And why does this point matter to your story? Oftentimes, when people say conservative, uh, like, what is a conservative? They'll think about, well, you're trying to, like, preserve the status quo. Or you're, maybe you're even trying to go backwards. And that is not, that may, and there, there are kinds of conservatism, conservatism in other countries. That's kind of exactly what it is. I mean, are you trying to bring back the monarchy? Those kinds of questions. I'm not trying to bring back uh, the monarchy, but the liberal tradition, which is really built around individual freedom, that is, that's what I'm talking about. And I think that, I think, fits in perfectly with the kind of future that I'm talking about because at the core of my idea is not that well we should we should create a, a a department of the future here in the United States and that department would have they would be in a fantastic office building huge room lots of flat screens and they would be planning the future exactly what it was going to look like where where we're going to build the new dome cities where we're going to build the other you know what would be the tax policy on Mars that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about something more organic that you create the environment for economic growth and technological progress so everybody can sort of have the the opportunity and tools at their disposal 
to pursue the future they they want. And that's why, while in the book, I give you know a few ideas of what things might look like. Those are just sort of suggestions. <laughs> I, if, if this is going to work, it's going to be a bottoms up kind of futurism built on the decisions of not just a few bureaucrats, but, but kind of all of us. I want to return now to what you call the, quote, great downshift to describe the relative slowing of progress over the past half century or so. It, it hasn't materialized in every part of the economy, of course. There's still been a narrow cone of progress in areas like computing, software, and internet. What, James, explains their aberrant performance in your mind? And what lessons can we derive from these parts of the economy in order to boost progress elsewhere? Well, right, sort of right after sort of the peak of kind of pro-progress enthusiasm we have in the 60s, we saw we saw this downshift, and statistically, and it's in the United States, it's it's 1973. Though we saw aspects of this across advanced economies, that measured worker productivity growth, sort of output per worker, and particularly the part of that which is represented by innovation, downshifted, slowed down by half, and kind of stayed there. Other than really sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, that productivity growth, and if you look at living standards, it's almost entirely driven over the long term by how productive people are. So that downshifted, and at first, people thought it was like a temporary thing. Maybe it's because of the oil crisis, but it never sort of upshifted again, again, really until those years right around the, uh, the internet boom. And because that slowed down, all the, to the best that people were forecasting, that fast, they assumed very fast productivity growth, very fast economic growth, and it just didn't happen. And that is... And the re main reason it didn't happen is we didn't get sort of the technical technological progress we expected. And the reasons for that, we're not entirely sure. There are some, there are a lot of great candidates. Everything from we kind of extracted all the gains from the big inventions of the past, like electrifying factories and the internal combustion engine. You know, maybe it's just that it got hard, you know, as we've kind of climbed the tree of innovation, that we've already got the stuff off the low branches. Now we have to climb up so high to make new big discoveries. There's a lot that, you know, I go through a lot of, some people, and this is one of my favorite, this is, by the way, this is not particularly accepted by a lot of economists. They, I, I know someone who blames it on um, the Drug Control Act here in the United States of the early 70s. So there were, it was tougher to get LSD unless, you know, <laughs> you know so, so, so you know, a lot of those early Silicon Valley guys, you know, they, uh, you know, they were, they were counterculture people. So maybe the crackdown on that played a role. I don't know. But there are a lot of uh, economic reasons. So that was and that was and that was certainly uh, part of it. But I think of what you're getting at, like some parts of the economy, the parts of the economy which were sort of they were unregulated, they didn't have obvious like environmental impacts. Those those did great. We're really talking the information technology revolution. You know, uh, you know, atoms. We're dealing not in atoms but in bytes. We're in cyberspace. That stuff accelerated. It's everything else. Everything else that we worried about. You know, uh, you know, was it going to pollute the atmosphere? Was it going to, you know, obscure view uh, our our views if we if we built something? Uh, anything we had to physically build, that stuff tended to slow down. And a lot of the the sort of things I was talking about earlier were stuff we had to build. 
You know, we have to build you know, high-speed rail everywhere. You know, we have to build dome cities. We have it was it was it was it was a it was a futurism of building. If you have to build in the real world, that stuff didn't do nearly as well. And and again, we're a problem. You know, we're still fighting today. Uh, you know, trying to build anything you know in the United States from a highway to a nuclear reactor, not so easy. You know, you want to write an app that you can do. I want to discuss some of the different factors that, as you say, came together to contribute to the to the great downshift. Years ago, I, I listened to your AEI colleague, Charles Murray, speak about uh, the Apollo program. He essentially said that it was shot through with a high risk tolerance. In fact, if I recall correctly, he even says that the weather conditions were suboptimal the day of Apollo 11's launch, and that today it would have undoubtedly been delayed. It leads to the question, what explains in, in your mind the modern risk aversion that now pervades the worlds of business and government? Uh, why did we retreat into safetyism? I think that the, the simple answer, the first answer may not be the entirely correct answer, is that we had more to lose. We became a richer country and we started focusing a lot more on preserving the status quo and taking big risks. Um, and that's you know that with the the environment is a classic case that generally when countries become richer they start caring a lot more about the environment when you're super poor and you're still struggling to industrialize that's that's secondary or tertiary i mean so i so i think that's a that's a huge part of it but also we had a culture telling us that risks weren't worth it that it wasn't worth it to go Mars, that it wasn't worth it to build nuclear reactors because sure you may get you'll have lots of energy, but you know, those things are gonna eventually there's gonna be a meltdown. So the world was portrayed as far riskier. So that risk reward ratio altered. And if the economy suddenly is growing slower at the same time, and I hear, I mean, I I certainly hear this today, uh, you know, when people talk about how slow the economy has been, you know, since the global financial crisis, they're like, well, it's not worth it. All this disruption that will be, that will be caused by growth and progress, it's not going to be worth it. Whether it's whether it's AI or any other new technology, well, you know, it's just going to cost jobs and it's going to raise inequality. And who knows? After they take our jobs, the murder bots may kill us. So <laughs> what's you know what's in it for us? People don't can't imagine too often what's the gain from all this progress. So that might as well be risk averse because there, there's no reason to take a risk. What would you say to the argument that a key cause is demographic? Uh, that is to say, as the baby boomers have aged, they've come to preference safety and stability over dynamism and progress. I mean, that's a big concern that as, as you get a country that is older, that's not growing a lot from but that the birth rates are falling. All the more reason to have, you know, scrappy immigrants come to your country. Yes. That that and that that is one of those sorts of exogenous macro factors that we just have to deal with. I mean, there's some things it's going to be very hard to change, like the demographic issue. Other than bringing in people from other countries, which obviously it's a very, I think that's super important, but it's a difficult policy issue. That is that is a that is a headwind. So then, if we're going to have that kind of headwind, then we need to make sure that the tailwinds are fully exploited that the kinds of things that we have control over we you can't just necessarily predict and conjure up a fantastic new invention you can't do that 
there's things you can do to make that more likely, perhaps, but you're not quite sure when is it when it's going to pay off. You know, this this, this sort of you know, the tree of innovation where you where some you have to know so much more as a scientist to sort of make that new discovery. That's just sort of the reality. So when you have those kinds of headwinds blowing, then the stuff you can control, you better make sure you do that right. That's a good segue to my next question. What's the role of public policy in your story? What changed in the era before the great downshift relative to what we've witnessed in recent decades to explain the slowing of progress? I went into this book not wanting to create what, especially, you know, especially being a conservative, working at a center-right think tank, wanting to portray like the usual suspects as villains. But it became very difficult as I kind of went through the book and did my research not to view sort of that environmental shift in the 1960s where we had, you know, you know, people became a lot more worried about radiation. They became a lot, they became a lot more worried about pesticides at the same time. And then they became worried about technology too, because you have the Vietnam War and sort of the worst fears of people about sort of big government and corporations, uh, you know, using, you know, high technology to kill people seem to be appearing and chemicals seem to be appearing in the Vietnam War. That whole era, I think environmentalism was a big part of it, really played a role in creating a, not just a, a cautious culture, but actual actual regulations and rules that made it super hard to build. And you, again, you don't have to just go back then. Anything proposed in this country of any significance, whether it's building a road, whether it's trying to drill a new geothermal well, you know, you can't get it done very quickly. You can't get it done very inexpensively. All it, it either will take so long that they abandon it or it'll take so long that the price the price shoots up. And I think that is sort of pervaded the culture. Why is it very difficult to create with, you know, with atoms rather than bits? It's hard not to see these kinds of rules, which I get, again, I think it was pretty natural that we focused a lot more on the environment back then. But clearly there was a wild overcorrection and that finally, I think you have people on the left and the right, when people who want a, a green economy realize, guess what? We can't build a transmission line in under 20 years in this country. That, and that's where some of my hope comes from, that people are starting to realize that broadly, that we, we overcorrected and we can't build anything. And that means you can't build a future. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. What do you think explains the political salience of nostalgia? And what must we do to create the conditions for the politics of progress to Trump, no pun intended, the politics of nostalgia. We have sort of, I think, built into us, you know, a lot of things that make us nostalgic. We have a 
There's a, there's there's different in behavioral economics. There's things called loss aversion, in which we feel losses. You know, you you lose five bucks, uh, you feel it more than suddenly. Oh, you find five bucks somehow. You know, shoved in. You know, a five dollar bill under the couch or something. There's that kind of loss aversion, risk aversion inherent in us. And I, I like to point to like political ads. You know, political ads love to show like. You know, and you know, an America that used to be for some people, it's an America never was. And I'll see ads; they'll show the Olympics. Jesse won at the Olympics, so they'll show the, you know, Apollo, the you know, the Apollo landing. That's that that's fine. But now, like, I want those ads to have like new stuff in them, which is what I'm trying to do. And I hope, I hope what we're finally seeing, because we just went through a pandemic where we saw what happens, both we saw what happens, we saw how it's, how hard it is to prepare for the unexpected. Even though we had a million white papers about, you know, pandemics, we still like, you know, didn't have enough protective equipment, not enough respirators, not enough stuff. But we saw what happens if you're a wealthy country that's technologically advanced, you can solve a problem probably far faster than you ever imagined. And I'm hoping that Concerns about the climate suddenly, gee, you know, if we all had, if we were, you know, 90% nuclear energy in this country, we probably wouldn't be talking about climate change. And we saw that from the pandemic, the power of science and government and the private sector to solve a problem quickly. I'm hoping those examples will be powerful enough that at some point we'll see a, a finally kind of breaking out of this paralysis and begin to take more risks as a society. I mean, I don't think going nuclear is particularly risky. A lot of people do. But I'm also seeing a lot more people begin to think, you know what, there's some risk, but you know what, the rewards are going to be worth it. And I'm, I, I, and I'm hoping that this book is coming out perfectly timed to be at sort of an inflection point, uh, both for sales and also for, and also for America <laughs> and the world. Yeah, I, I would just say in parentheses, as Canada pursues the goal of net zero emissions by 2050, you're seeing even progressives making the case that we need to speed up the process to approve new mines because, of course, we won't be able to um, put an end to the internal combustion engine if we're not mining the critical minerals that will uh, support uh, the expansion of electric vehicles. So I, I think you are right that we're in a bit of a moment where progress seems to be back on the agenda. In that vein, James, let me ask you, what are some practical steps that we can take to, to further that trend, what's the Pathakukos plan to revive progress? Even though the book says a conservative futurist, I really view this as a nonpartisan book. Because I think if you believe we have it in our power to make tomorrow for our kids and grandkids significantly better, that they can have more opportunity, they can have a better climate, they can have, they can be free of disease. If you think like we have it in our power, then I think then we're all on the same team. So I think if you look at some of my ideas, they're, they're ones, I think, which are broadly appealing. Everything from doubling, at least in the United States, doubling how much government spends on research, kind of at least back to what we saw during the Apollo era. I often wonder, like, what was, okay, we were spending a lot of money on Apollo, and then what did we replace it with? We, we, we won that race. Did we, did we start a different race? No, we stopped racing. So maybe the second Apollo could have been clean energy or something else. We did it. So I want to spend a lot of government money on research while also hopefully reforming and, make, and, and making that process a lot more efficient. And 
in this country, this there's a thing called the National Environmental Policy Act, the big regulatory act, which makes you fill out a lot of forms and it takes a and it takes a long time to do and really slows things down. I would get rid of that. I think there's some I I, I highlight some ways to reform it, but it may just be too far gone. So we need to say goodbye to like the 1970s outlook toward regulation. Again, the conservative part, the economic freedom part, I like trade. I like immigration. One of my favorite quotes from Elon Musk is, there's no better place in the world with all, you know, apologies to Canada. We'll say, we'll say, we'll say Canada. I'd say to make a dream, to make your dream come true than the United States. I want us, you know, I, I want, I want that to stay true. And I hope other countries compete hard for that honor. Because when countries are competing for that that honor, they're meaning they're doing smart things, like they're accepting immigrants. I want I want there to be a race to get the smartest people to come to our country. I think colonizing the moon would be a great idea. I mentioned a story in the book when when Newt Gingrich down here was running for president, and he back I, I, back I think 2012, and he said we yes. should colonize the moon. People made fun of him. Mitt Romney made fun of him. That would be actually kind of an awesome idea because not only would it like be uh, like you know, highly inspirational. It would begin to move us off planet. We could test all the technologies we're going to need if we want to move further out in the solar system and begin to do things like mine asteroids. Like, that's not crazy. Like, a lot of the technology to do that we already have. So that would be a great proof of concept. It'd also be darn inspiring. That's okay, too. Here, here. Let me take up your point about global competition. Is a new Cold War with China, or whatever one calls it, possibly a positive development for progress? Do we need that type of sense of urgency to pull us out of our collective complacency? I wish we didn't. I wish I wish my my optimistic vision and me me talking about like what we could do would be enough. The history of government and society doing big things suggests that often it isn't enough that we need to feel some sort of pressing crisis such as the pandemic to do something. And, I, and I'll tell you, I know I'm in Washington, D.C. Using China, say like, we need to do this or China will do it first. China's already doing this. Why aren't we doing it? That is a very, it may be a, an easy argument to make. Uh, and sometimes it's a cheap argument to make, but it's a, always a very compelling argument to make to people. Because The example I like to point is last uh, last November, we had the emergence of you know these these new generative AI models like ChatGPT, and you know we spent about five minutes thinking about how cool they were before we started worrying about you know them taking our jobs and so forth. But what if instead of it being like Open AI and Microsoft and now Google with Bard and some other, what if these had been all Chinese companies? What if they had not been Western companies? What would our reaction we? That would have been like a real Sputnik moment for us. There would be a, a panic throughout the West. What did we do wrong? What's going to happen? Are they going to get super intelligent AI first? It, that's all we would be talking about, right? You think we're talking, you think you're sick of hearing about ChatGPT and AI now? That's all we would be talking about. And it would be talking about how we lost that race. Yeah, just in parentheses, I'd observe that competing against China seems to be one of the few things that animates bipartisanship in Washington. So for better or for worse, those in favor of progress might as well use it to make some of the changes that you outline in the book. In that vein, I want to ask about reforming the ecosystem in and around research and development. There's a debate occurring in Canada, James, about whether 
public R&D resources ought to be prioritizing incremental research or big bets? Where do you come down on that question? Well, I think I think we need to start at the thing which everyone should agree with, which sort of early stage basic kinds of research, the kind companies just will not do because it's going to take too long and there's not an obvious commercialization aspect. Government needs, I mean, government, there should be no debate about that, that we that we need to do more of that. And and the the more you move away from that, that's when it becomes more controversial. For instance, uh, there are companies which are doing this kind of advanced geothermal where they kind of create their own, you know, heat reservoirs in the rock using, you know, fracking techniques. And a lot of these companies will get money from the Department of Energy. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think in a world where we had like a big carbon tax and you and that would, I think, incentivize the market to do that in a world that we don't have that, at least in the United States, then I don't mind those kinds of kind of early stage partnerships between government and the private sector. I think things like moonshots, I think it, I think it needs to be a very specific goal. I think there needs to be like some pressing urgency in order to keep people focused. Otherwise, I think it ends up being a moonshot for this, a moonshot for that. And then you just get it. I think you'll get just another sort of unfocused government program. One final thing on that, China looked like they had figured out. They knew how to identify key technologies. They would pour money into them and they would leap ahead. That does not seem to be happening. So I think if anybody who wants to duplicate those kinds of policies, pick you know, nine, 10, 11 key sectors, and then poor resources and think that's going to work. I wish, I wish it were that easy, but it doesn't seem to be that easy because China is trying to do it and they're not doing so well. It's one thing to catch up. It's another to push the frontier forward and still, you know, the free enterprise system with government doing its role still seems to work pretty great. We had you on the podcast previously, and we talked a bit about fault lines within American conservatism. I want to come back to that subject in the context of your book. It seems to me many of the things you've outlined here and that you discuss in the book would have fit comfortably in, say, a Ronald Reagan agenda. Why do you think some parts of the American conservative movement are flinching when it comes to economic growth and progress? I think I think one reason is that we've had a long period. It didn't start with the financial crisis. But that's part of it of of slow growth. I made it look like business didn't know what it was doing. You had with Donald Trump an influx, and I think this might end up being the most important reason, though it's a symptom of the previous one. A lot of new voters who are far more skeptical about markets and 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 disruption from growth. That's going to be part of it. If you want to, if you want an economy that's going to grow, it's going to be dynamic, and there's and and there will be changes in jobs, businesses rise, businesses fall, different parts of the country will accelerate. That that kind of tumult is not very appealing to some people, and there's a lot more of those kinds of people inside uh, the Republican Party. And again, when you have slow growth, it really feels to a lot of people like no growth, and. If you recall, like in the 1990s, we had very fast growth. There was a rising inequality, but growth was so fast. Wages were going up so fast, nobody cared. And I think people care far less about these kinds of issues, issues of issues of inequality, about how much the CEO is making, if it is kind of a rising all boats, all boats are rising kind of uh, period. 
And you're only going to get that with rapid economic growth. And that's still the case. Oftentimes, you'll, you'll, you'll read this. They'll say, well, there's a disconnect that workers can become more productive, have great new machines, but it won't reflect in their pay. That's really not the case. If, if, if we become more productive, wages will go up. That is the only way for them to go up over the long term. And I, I address that in the book. So you're right. What I'm describing now, that could easily fit into the uh, Republican Party. In fact, I spent a lot of time talking about a conservative futurist named Herman Kahn. And uh, when he passed in 1983, Ronald Reagan made sure that he announced it and said he's a futurist who is optimistic about the future at a time when there are a lot of futurists who are not. In light of some of those small p political challenges to your agenda, talk a bit about the way the book thinks and talks about political coalitions and building a coalition around breaking out of the great downshift. I think one of the most, I, I think, positive things that's happened is that you're seeing these coalitions develop around issues for some of the kind of broader reasons we've been talking about. Issues like housing, where now it is not just a bunch of crazy libertarians talking about make it too hard to build housing in across the country, particularly some high productivity regions where people should want to move to and not have any wage gains get gobbled up by housing costs. Like that issue the sort of not in my backyard, now yes in my backyard issue, that there are plenty of people on the left who, ha who have realized that that issue hurts. It hurts wages, it hurts um, quality, it hurts opportunity, it hurts productivity. That is like an everything issue, which now is attracting people on the left and right. Again, nuclear energy being another one, where if you want, if you want cheap, abundant, clean energy, that we're gonna, we're, it's gonna probably have to be nuclear. Maybe great if we, and, and of course, like the technology is helping us. You know, we just had this great fusion energy, nuclear fusion energy breakthrough. There's all kinds of breakthroughs with um, deep geothermal, which doesn't get as much uh, publicity. But we see they have this kind of suite or portfolio of issues which people can be attracted to. So it's not just like, you know, my kinds of conservatives who are talking about economic growth and that's great. But when you have the Biden administration saying we need to have a more productive economy, I love hearing that word productive. because <laughs> That means they're focusing on how we can have faster economic growth, make workers more productive. And once you begin thinking like that, begin to look at every policy like does this make us more innovative does this you know does this is this going to help uh, accelerate technological progress it's a whole different way of looking at the world and i hope there's more people on both sides of the aisle looking at the world from you know that perspective i want to return to a subject we discussed earlier the book is dedicated to your wife and seven kids <laughs> yeah. it, it made me think if parenthood turns us into futurists what will be the consequence that fewer in our societies are having children? Nothing drives me crazier than people who will say, listen, I have seven kids. If people don't want to have seven kids, that's fine. They can have no kids, one kid, whatever, whatever works for them. But I think people who decide not to have kids because they think the world, they're, they're sentencing their children to a worse place. That I don't get because one, I don't think that needs to be the case. I think there are things to worry about. But I think we have it within our power to create a better world that you that you would you absolutely want kids to be a part of because that world's going to be better. That world's going to be they'll have they'll be able to do more cool things. They'll be able to do whatever they want. And 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 not just people. Uh, it's easy to say, you know, you and I we live in you know very well run countries. But my goal is that like everyone 
should be have the lifestyle of someone who lives in Canada or the United States or France. I think that that is like a very explicit goal. And there are a lot of people, unfortunately, while some environments are changing, a lot of the environmentalists still think like we can't have that. That that you're selling people a false bill of goods. Not only they will never get rich, we all must live less well. I think that's a losing message, and I think that and I think it's a false message. So that's what I am trying. I'm trying to create a world of abundance and prosperity, not just for my kids here in the you know the greater Washington D.C. area, but for kids everywhere and their kids everywhere, both here and uh, perhaps out in space. <laughs> in addition to being a father, you're also a Christian. How does your faith influence your futurism? And again, does contemporary secularism represent a challenge to a futuristic orientation in your mind? Yeah, I'm not a, uh, I, you know, I'm not a, uh, a, they call a transhumanist, which are people who want to, you know, use technology to either, you know, to conquer death, to upload themselves. I, I'm fine knowing that I won't go on forever. But I think we have a responsibility. If you want to go back deep in the Bible, you'll find out we're supposed to have dominion over the earth. Well, I think that with great with great power comes great responsibility. And we have the responsibility, I think, to create, to create and preserve, preserve what's best about humanity, preserve what's best about the world while also being creative. To me, fundamentally, like being a Christian is about is about the creative act, not just creative act, having children, but creating music. Or new technology and exploring the universe. You know, there's the saying that like if the universe is empty, it's an awful waste of space. Well, if there's no aliens out there, I guess we'll have to go out there and fill it up. Final question. Paint a picture of the American tricentennial. How will we know if the Pathakukos plan is one out? Well, if we're if no one has air conditioning, then something's gone very, very <laughs> wrong. I, I think that that is that is a world where people are not listen, there's they're gonna be problems. You know, it's like you solve one problem, there's going to be another problem. And in fact, that solution might create a problem, but then we go solve that one too. So this is, I am not, this is not an utopia. It is not a problem-free world. But I would hope that is a world where the, the things that concern us the most, we're not concerned about. That we have cures for many chronic diseases. That we that people no longer about, worry about any sort of extreme, the, sort of the extreme climate uh, scenarios that you couldn't make a movie about climate disaster because it'd be it would be ridiculous to people because we know we've solved that problem that we, we don't even have to worry about some rogue asteroid smashing into us or not paying attention that like those kind of big existential risks have been solved and over the past generation 20 years we've raised a billion people out of poverty well i hope I, I, I hope i hope we've raised multiples of that out of extreme poverty if we can talk about that then the tricentennial lot to celebrate that's a, a powerful vision for the future and just some of the ideas reflected in The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. James Pathakukos, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. John, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. 
I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.